Hey everyone, and welcome, dear listener, to another episode of Security Headlines. My name is Philip, and I will be your guide throughout this episode. I'm super excited about this episode because joining me today is a person I had no idea of who it was before I traveled to the Hackers on Planet Earth conference in New York. While I was sitting in the crowd, like a confused Swede, I noticed this character on the stage, and I asked the person sitting behind me, who is this? And everyone just referred to him as, okay, that's Yoni. A local celebrity, they told me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So today I have a special guest joining me in this episode. It's an honor for me to welcome the hacker, the 2600 contributor, speaker at various conferences, explorer of computer system. It's Jonne Christmas. How are you doing today? Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. What an intro. (laughs) Local (laughs) celebrity is... (laughs) I I had no idea I was a local celebrity there. <laughs> no, I had no idea of who you were before. <laughs> so I'm just a guy who talks a lot. And apparently everyone says, oh, that's Yanni. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. It was my first so, uh, hacker on the uh, Hope conference. So I thought, oh, okay, that's just, that's probably just one of the regulars. Uh, I, I have been a regular there for 20 years now. Yeah. I just didn't know anyone recognized me. <laughs> Very cool. It's one of my favorite conferences for sure. Yeah. So something I'm really 20 years. Wow. But how did your yeah. journey into technology start? And how did you end up here? Oh, being uh, being a bad kid, <laughs> which I think maybe applies to many of us being a punk. Gosh, what it's such a big question. So as a child, even uh, a very young child, I had a propensity for dismantling um, things around the house that would make my father very angry when I would do things like this. And um, okay. he, he eventually gave me a whole bucket of things which were mine, which were okay to dismantle. And he <laughs> gave me tools which were mine, which were okay to use. And then don't touch anything that's not in this bucket. and about age eight i began to figure out how to put them back together (laughs) and just from between that and then watching my father who was a mechanic and carpenter and various other blue color blue collar types of things like that i learned that you can make things do most anything you might want Uh, and especially from taking something apart and taking something else apart and then combining the two and making them do some things they were never meant to do and I think that is where the core of hacking lies. <laughs> it is oh. knowing, it's taking things apart, knowing the core of how they operate, and then finding out, finding out what else we can do that maybe we weren't meant to do with what we learned. And uh, so I grew up kind of going down that path and having anything that was presented to me as like, here's the thing and here's how it works. I would then go, okay, how else can it work? What else can we do with this? Okay. And I think that, you know various computers over the years and learning how to make the computers do things for me versus doing things for the computer. And uh, I don't know, here we are. <laughs> and 40 years oh. later, I'm now speaking at hacker conferences on how to do terrible things to computers. But uh, how did you end up being involved in 2600 and uh, <laughs> going to Hope? And uh... That's a great question. Um, 2600 was my first hacker conference and back then when i first went in in the year 2000 there was effectively really only two big ones here in the us there was defcon 
which I think most people have heard of, and then the Hackers on Planet Earth Conference, which was really um, had grown out of, uh, well, 2600 Magazine, but also it kind of became like a sister conference to the Chaos Computer Congress goings on where we, we would get a lot of Europeans who would come over from that, who knew of 2600, who would come to the Hope Conference, possibly such as yourself. I was in my early 20s at the time, and I had a friend, I had met a friend in my town who was also into taking things apart and making them do things they should not. And uh, we both read 2600 magazine. And he pointed out to me one day, hey, uh, look at the back page. There's a, they have a, a conference where everyone can come to New York and get together. And uh, it's all hackers. It's a whole hack. It's all hackers all weekend. And they give presentations and you can learn how to do things like you can pick locks and solder crazy gadgets. Like the, the TV be gone was a yeah, really yeah. big thing at the time. That was, that was the year that came out somewhere around there. And, and I was like, there's no way this isn't real. There's no way that such a thing can exist. <laughs> there, where are the police? They're going to arrest everyone here. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we got, we figured out how we could get there. We lived in Chicago at the time, and we said, okay, we'll have, we can't fly because it's too expensive, so we'll have to drive. This is how long ago it was. You know, petrol was less expensive than a plane ticket at the time. <laughs> and so we said, okay, we figured out exactly how many miles and what the miles miles per gallon of petrol the vehicle could get and how much we'd have to spend and what we figured out a free place to sleep once we were there and so let's let's go see what this is and it was absolutely incredible i made so many friends there that i have kept over the years who have taught me so many things who have helped me grow into someone who now gives back by taking what I've learned and presenting at these conferences as you as you've seen you know I learned from the people who were doing it then and I said I I wish I could do this and they said you can there's the stage go ahead <laughs> <laughs> and it was that easy and that's it really cool and I'm crazy to me now that I'm openly discussing it how long it's been going on and how much of a fun ride it's been and it all started from that friend who just happened to turn all the way to that back last page into 2600 and said, Hey, look, this seems interesting. That was a pivotal point, wow. pivotal point in my life. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. That's really, wow. That's a cool jump thanks, down the thank, rabbit hole. Yeah. Thanks for letting me remember that. <laughs> I don't, I don't look in the rear view much and there's some cool stuff back there. Totally. And you've been, uh, have you been attending Hope? Was it, did you make it to like uh, a yearly thing where you attended Hope? Hope is every, well, Hope is uh, every, Hope ever since I believe 1998 has been every two years. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is what makes it particularly interesting is uh, it's every other year. And so when you go back, all of these people that you reconnect with, you haven't seen them in years now. And I think it leads to much more interesting presentations because you have two years of technological advancement in between each conference and uh, everyone has grown two years more and <laughs> is often different people when you when you meet them and it's very cool to reconnect like that. It's, but yes, I've been making a point to go. I even attended in, in quotes this year, uh, the virtual conference. Oh, I spoke cool. there as well. Nice. Um, I've been speaking at Hope every year for the past or I, I believe four, four or five iterances of it, which crazy to me because, you know, it's the first hope was my introduction to this entire underworld of hackers that socialize and to be able to then go and speak at this conference 
that I idolized and thought was just like the coolest thing on earth was just crazy to me. And I, I commented on it and stayed there all the time. Like, I can't believe I'm still speaking at hope. I love hope. <laughs> it's, it was my gateway into, into this madness. <laughs> no, I, and you just been in the field ever since. And, but was there any like light bulb moment where you're like, uh, Hey, I'm going to stay in the, in the hacking and the IT security scene forever. And I'm, I actually want to work with it and make it, I think do it more it, and more. It's so natural to me that I can't say that there was ever a light bulb. I feel like it's just something I've always done. It's something that I've just inherently been attracted to. And, you know, because again, it's, it's all about making things do what they're not supposed to do or making sure that they can't have that done to them, <laughs> which involves having to think of all of the things that can be done to them and to defend against it. And I just really think that's fascinating. It's like a constant game. It's a constant thought puzzle. And it makes you always have to think outside of the box and think outside of the user manual. Uh, and I just really like that because it gives that, that uh, kind of internal... Uh, iconoclast internal like defiance against authority and outlet <laughs> because you have the authority that is say the user manual the instructions like here's how the device the software is supposed to be used and they go okay well i'm not going to do that <laughs> what else can we do here and so it, it's I, I believe it's a healthy uh, a legal outlet for <laughs> such tendencies <laughs> and so it satisfies that perpetual urge that I just have inside of me. And I really feel like I was just lucky enough to live in a world, to live in an age when you can be employed and do such things. things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, when I first started breaking things, there was no, it was, it was rare. You could get employment doing something like this. Like, yes, there was, there was penetration testers all the way back in the nineties and things like that, but you couldn't, you know, go on the, the job websites and just look for, you didn't even know what to call that job. Like the, the title of penetration tester wasn't something anyone had even heard of. So working in security was rare. Often you worked, you were a systems engineer, network engineer, something like that. And you just would have to research security on your own and hope you got the right information. There weren't conferences, you know, there weren't podcasts, there wasn't website there wasn't a training for any of this it was you had to read the forums <laughs> and hope you found something cool uh news groups and newsletters uh, yeah the, the cool bug stuff mailing list and stuff mailing like lists yes yeah. yep yeah <laughs> and that was that's all we had back then and we got pretty far with it but that's also why so many of the major vulnerabilities that we see coming out on the news now are based uh, are from code that was written 15, 20, 25 years ago. It's because 25 years ago, we didn't have even, we didn't even begin to conceive of such a world where, <laughs> where this many people would be seeking to attack something that was created like, you know, uh, SSL. And uh, here we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, demand, the demand has certainly gone up a lot. And also the democratization of the data. Now everything is available and uh, you don't have to join mm -hmm. a, a private IRC group and uh, prove your skills in order to <laughs> read proof of concept exploits anymore. Right. You remember <laughs> back, back in the day, if you called yourself a hacker, that was instant invitation to be attacked <laughs> because... Nobody's a hacker. Right? If you think you're a hacker, we're going to prove you wrong. And nowadays, everyone can call themselves a hacker. 
it's always crazy to me how that's changed. Like everyone was afraid to, well, I'm not a hacker, but I have broken into these systems by writing my own code, which exploits these vulnerabilities, but I'm not a hacker. I'm not that good. <laughs> and that's how we used to have to talk. And nowadays we're all hackers. <laughs> yeah. The, the community is moving uh, a, a big change, but isn't that all, all like, isn't that because it's before it was much easier to become like a, um, computer expert because there were less protocols and there were less stuff that you needed to be an expert in. So as the field has kind of grown more and more, it's, uh, it's become harder to actually become a, an expert uh, like you were in the old days, you know, like the, mm -hmm. uh, the Bruce Schneider guy, you know, he wrote a book about cryptography and then he put everything that was basically available about cryptography in the book. And you can't really right. do that. Uh, you can't do that today. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, that's, that's quite true. I often joke about how there was a time in our lives where uh, you, your career was computers with this hand wave, like, oh, I do computers <laughs> and I know how to do computers. And they would say, oh, go talk to Johnny. He knows computers. And that's all you had to know was computers. And you either knew computers or you didn't know computers. And computers was everything, top to bottom. It was networking. It was it was uh, protocols. It was cryptography. Because like you said, it was all, there wasn't much going on. There wasn't much to it. And you could definitely become an expert in how all of that worked. But um, we needed things to become faster and more scalable, uh, more powerful. Uh, more secure. And as, uh, as that happened, it created many, 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 many more technologies. And so now you can no longer be a generalist. You have to be, you know, you can make a career as a database administrator, you which, have to be specific. you know, right. 25 years ago, there was no such thing really as a database administrator. It was just the IT guy handled the database and there was one database and it was, <laughs> You know, it was uh, Microsoft Access. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Computer Man. Yeah. Yeah, he was, and there was one. There was one IT guy, and he <laughs> for the whole organization, and he took care of it all. Now you can't do that. Yeah, and so to be a security expert in everything is impossible too. Like, and you, you, everyone has their small corner of technologies that they've been drawn to that they're per perhaps experts in, but. Uh, I think nobody can declare themselves just a security expert anymore. There's the the field is too wide and it's far beyond the, the what one single human can handle. Yeah. Do you well, certainly there are philosophies and such that you know that, that apply to everything and you can be an expert in those, but as far as securing specific technologies, right, there's there's too many. Have you put yourself in any of those uh, boxes saying that you're a uh you're an expert in something. Oh, no, I don't. I don't do that. I feel strange doing that. And that might still mm -hmm. come from back in the day when like you weren't allowed to call yourself a hacker. <laughs> and so I feel like if I if I call myself an expert that opens the door for a whole bunch of people to prove me wrong. And so it's uh, the there's a phrase I like that says it's it's uh, it's better to be thought of as an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> so I just I'll keep my mouth shut <laughs> and some people will give you the benefit. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to, to look at it. Uh, 
But what excites you today most about technology? What what kind of uh, what what do you get most excited about these days when it comes to technology and playing around with new things? If you want to talk about these days, um, you know, we're especially here in the U.S. Uh, under the we are one of the focal points of the pandemic here in the U.S. It's very very bad here. Uh, we're one of the worst oh. countries on earth as far as the pandemic goes, and because of that. There have been such leaps in the technological realms of remote communications that have needed to happen for a very long time. And it's very cool to see that happening. It's a shame that it has to happen on the backs of all those who are dying. But the fact that we're finally focusing on issues such as there's there's a substantial percentage of people in the US, you know, the greatest country in the world, the US, who don't have stable uh, high-speed internet access. That's crazy. But now we've reached a point where we say, hey, children can't go to school, so you have to have high-speed internet access. And all of these families come back and say, well, we don't, and we can't afford them. We couldn't afford it before, and now we've all lost our jobs, and we definitely can't afford it now, so what are we supposed to do? And uh, to see these municipalities come back and say, okay, if you are, you know, the lower income families, we're going to take care. We're working with the local ISPs to figure out how to make broadband affordable for the city to provide to you. And so cool things like that. The broadband companies, the ISPs have been working hard on figuring out how to make themselves more cost effective and how to provide low cost or sometimes free internet to these families without, you know, putting themselves out of business or risking risking affecting their existing customers. And so that that's caused a lot of really cool technological advancements. It's caused a lot of smaller internet providers that used to be priced out by the big names, able to come forward and still provide internet access to many more people than would have been able to talk to them before. And so it's, you know, the small businesses are being able to rise up because they're helping during this. And so that's been very cool. We've been seeing huge advancements in the securing of these these remote conversations that we have. I mean, here we're, we're using Zoom for this and everyone knows you know, Zoom was all over the news for you know its general uh, yep. security issues when the pandemic first hit. And then Zoom responded you know, full force with, okay, we're going to fix all of this and we're going to be extremely transparent and open about everything we're doing. And they bought up Keybase and we're integrating those that technology with this. And it's, it's just been amazing. We all, those of us who have used remote conferencing software in the past know that it's all been universally terrible (laughs) and uh, regardless of vendor. And it's really great to see that that technology is being pushed forward and improved because so many people need to use it and there's no other way. And, and it's just, it's just been great to see. It's just unfortunate that it takes a global pandemic, as I said, to make these moves happen. So many people have gotten into like streaming and sharing their knowledge based, you know, we can't go to conferences and talk about these things anymore. And so Twitch and YouTube streaming has skyrocketed during the pandemic because this is the outlet. And it's cool to see people saying, hey, here's just a thing I'm working on and let's talk through it by way of that. It's that's, yeah, that's definitely, you know, knowledge sharing during the pandemic. It has to be at an all time high as well. And so, yeah, I could, I could go on like this forever. (laughs) The pandemic has brought us many great things just with unfortunate, unfortunate side effects. Yeah, I mean, Twitch has gone from just being gaming to actually see people play Capture the Flag and actually hack stuff yeah. and do <laughs> yeah. live programming, which I think is cool. And Twitch only added that live programming option, 
I believe two, two to three years ago, super recently. Mm. And it, it's always been kind of a, you know, back, back of the stove kind of thing, kind of strange. People were still playing with it. And as soon as that pandemic hit, yeah, it skyrocketed to now there's thousands of, they call it IRL, like in real life, thousands of IRL streamers going on at any given time, sharing what they're doing. And it's not, it used to be just, you know, cam people just talking to a phone like, hey, just woke up thinking about getting breakfast, yeah. you know, and now it's one of my favorite Twitch streamers. He is a watch, you know, like a wristwatch repairman oh, and he cool. streams himself. Oh, it's the coolest thing. And he just streams himself repairing watches and talks you through everything that he's doing, what everything does. And he's got a microscope on the desk because it's, you know, microscopic things he's dealing with. I'm like, That's the coolest thing. And there's so much of that now. And it's like, it's replaced YouTube as a great place to go to learn things. It's just they're live. <laughs> yeah, you can interact with them with, with the chat. Uh, yeah, and that's what's cool. That's you can cool. ask a question and get your question answered almost immediately from an expert on something or from someone who just knows a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. What's the name of the watch guy? I can pull that up here in a second. Cool. So I also heard that you're a cigar smoker. Are you a cigar uh, into cigars? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, oh, for sorry. The the Twitch streamer's name is Mister Mister Horologist, which is the name of you know someone who repairs those sorts of things. H o r o l o g i s t. Mister underscore Horologist. If anyone wants to watch him, cool. I'll put uh, that in the so show notes. Yeah, there you go. So yes, I'm. Uh, I am definitely a big cigar fan. It's been a really rough time for me because um, I don't uh, smoke cigars in the house just because they, you know, they, they leave Ventilation. an odor, they get in everything. Yeah. I, uh, technology hates it. <laughs> and so I just, I don't. And I think that's, that's real common for many of us, especially those of us who don't have a specific room we can set aside for it. I don't live in a massive house or anything. And so this is, I say, well, I have to smoke cigars outside. And generally it's been fine because anytime I felt like it, I could call some friends and say, hey, let's get together and go have some cigars and hang out. Or I could go on a friend's balcony at their apartment or something. And oh, cool. Pandemic hit and we we can't gather anymore. And we can't, you know, I used to run you know, a, a meetup called Cigar Sec and it was all security oh, cool. professionals. And we would get together once a month and we'd meet inside of a cigar shop and there would be 10 to 12 of us at a time and we'd have some cigars and hang out and talk. And we eventually started attracting non-security people who were just interested in security, interested in what we were doing. And that, that was really cool. And then, and then the pandemic hit and all of that got shut down. And so we, we, we've been testing it now and trying it with very small groups. Like last month we had four people and we met outdoors on a very large patio so you can do your social distancing and limit your numbers and that's you know it's okay you know it's not it's nowhere near as fun as it used to be you know i enjoy cigars uh for the social aspect of them you know i was never much one to have a cigar on my own i enjoyed having cigars with friends the same way that many people will you know have a drink like let's go get drinks let's go we'll all hang out and have some drinks like i was like i was the let's hang out and have some cigars guy um, oh that's cool yeah, and, and it uh, just it's it it hurts not being able to do it anymore. <laughs> I also I spend uh, some time at the local cigar launch and I getting into cigar it's truly a science with the the different brands the filler the oh, wrappers yeah. the what it's kind the of same as 
do you like? Are you a Lancero person or what? Uh, what do you like? Uh, I like uh, I like a, uh, a less densely packed cigar. I like you know something that's a uh, quick to medium quick smoke. Um, because I like mm -hmm. to experience lots of things. And so if we're getting together, I want to go, okay, I want to try to get to, can I get through three cigars? That would be oh. <laughs> really cool. And so if you're getting like a big, a big fat dense one, like you're not, you might get through one of those in one sitting. And so I like the lighter cigars. Um, I like uh, the medium flavor. Um, so I try to avoid the real bold ones. I find with the, the more medium flavors, you can get more flavors in like you could detect more nuance to the the different the tobacco or the different tobaccos are in there you can really taste the tobacco versus like the, the filler versus the wrapper so i like to stick right around the middle with that and also have like a quick quick smoke and so that's that's what i try to lean towards and and um whenever i go to the cigar shops i always i like to talk to the personnel there the the, the shop owners or the people working say hey here's what i like what do you have that's new and always try the new things. The downside is uh, oh. I almost never, like I'll make notes of the ones I like and I will almost never go back to them because <laughs> I'm always going and saying what's new. And it's the same as, you know, people who love whiskey or people who love beer, like there's no end to any new things for you to try. And you always want to try new things. And there's so many great aspects of so many great whiskeys and beer i mean we humans have been making new beer for thousands of years there's no end to beer and everyone likes their own kinds of beers and you can also like every kind of beer and so cigars are the same way and that's why i really love them it's an unending unending hobby it's not just you know it's not like cigarettes where they all kind of taste the same except some of them have menthol and, and that's and you don't nobody really smokes a cigarette for the taste you know <laughs> nobody's had a cigarette going oh that's oh that's a tasty one i'm so glad it <laughs> you know but cigar yeah it's a, it's it's a hobby and it's an art for sure just like i said just as like liquor and and, and beer and things are an art uh, both in the production and the the enjoyment yeah, my good friend uh, Connie, he owns a cigar launch in Sweden. He says there's only one way to become a cigar expert, and that is to try them all, which is yeah, so <laughs> impossible. How close yeah. is he? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's uh, he has had quite a lot. I think yeah, I, and that's that's what's so great because every time you go into the shop, it's Christmas. It's it's uh, it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's uh, everything you could yeah. ever want here you here it is and you haven't tried th three quarters of these you 75 percent of this you've never touched before and the, the world is open to you every time you go and that's it's just a it's a great hobby yeah certainly and there's also a lot of uh, my friend get a lot of like product samples so they will like cigar yeah. companies will send him like Okay, try this one and uh, yeah, and they're always like really them. good because they they're trying to push their high end stuff. And so yeah, I I like yeah. to go to a cigar events at the stores for the same reason. Well, they have a vendor in talking about their cigar, and you'll usually get something very cheap or free and high end stuff. Yeah, and with not smoke like me not being able to smoke that often, um, that means I get to build up quite a quite a nice collection of very tasty things that I have here at the ready for when I do meet up with friends and I can say, hey, here you go, have one. These are all great. I have my little ammo uh, ammunition canister that's cedar oh, lined uh, and <laughs> and your own humidor. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little yeah, mini cool. humor. I put a little humidity pack in it and I can carry it around and it's waterproof and airtight and it could go on the airplanes and <laughs> and I always have cigars <laughs> for people. Yeah. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. There's one brand I really like called Arturo Fuente. They have one special uh, uh, line called The Shark. And uh, I, I shark. get it special. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I get it specially imported from uh, a company in Romania. And uh, it, it's also very weird because it's like, I get it like from the manufacturer, a middleman from the manufacturer, and it's like mm-hmm. less right. than half the price from the retail value. So, uh, could that uh, be due to just like a Romanian exchange rate, perhaps? Yeah, I think or so. Because the economy. Uh, no, yeah, I think it's uh, because they have uh, less uh, like uh, tobacco taxes or something. Oh uh, uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, and then less of an export have, tax, I guess, or something, or. You would yeah, think that Sweden, so. are you in Sweden? Am I right in a Sweden? Yeah, exactly. Or? Okay, all right. I didn't know if you were still there. Uh, yeah. So I have to wonder if Sweden also doesn't have much of a tobacco tax on imports. There is this new like European regulation that kicked in, uh, I think uh, it was a year yeah. or two ago, where they're forcing, uh, they're forcing a new taxation upon all uh, non-European imported cigars. And the taxation rate is... Uh, each country get to decide their own taxation rate, rate. Uh, and Sweden oh, okay. is the one that's put the put the highest uh, import tax on it. Oh, that's so, not okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and even so still, it, you can get these cigars relatively cheap. It sounds like, so that's good. Yeah, but it's like uh, it's kind of sad because it has like slowed down the amount of cigars, and you have to like pay. Uh, you basically have the importer have to pay two thousand dollars per uh, per module, so not per brand, so per like version that hmm. they import. Okay, which is like in order to get like rights to import it, so two thousand bucks yeah. to like import, and that's per version. And maybe the good cigar shop very... will maybe have limited a of version. Yeah, yeah, very strange. It yeah, it's You're weird. A... Here in the U.S., we have uh, we have uh, an embargo against importing anything from Cuba, and this has made Cuban cigars exceptionally desirable, simply because they're difficult to obtain. They're illegal to import, and we're not allowed to travel to Cuba. Um, We actually we can now. Very recently, they opened that up slightly, um, but it's still somewhat difficult. And you can bring like you know two cigars or something back with you. You certainly can't bring enough back to share with your whole family. But uh, so when Americans travel to other countries who are cigar fans, we always look for a cigar shop, which is selling Cuban cigars and perhaps in Sweden or something that's not that big of a deal. Like, oh, yeah, Cuba has good tobacco. Sure, it's fine. Americans, we this is the 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 golden fleece, the mythical thing that we talk about, like a Cuban cigar. I had when someone has one, they call your friends and go, I had I had a Cuban cigar. Sweden they go whoa (laughs) Whoa. it's very it was very strange when I started traveling internationally and and just seeing them being sold in the shops like they're nothing (laughs) and here they're highly desirable (laughs) that's very nice so yeah let's get into a bit uh, of hacking uh, oh, we don't have to. Maybe if you, if you want, <laughs> I, I I I love to stay on cigars forever. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think our listeners might not be so jolly about that. You've been involved in a project called Ghost Express. What is that? <laughs> that has nothing to do with hacking. <laughs> uh, well, uh, gosh, I don't know. 
Uh, we can talk through it briefly. And it, it, so pitch we sell, me. we sell, oh, yeah, I will pitch you. What if I told you <laughs> that you could anonymously send a ghost to anyone you like in the world? Why would would I you that? be interested in that? Why? <laughs> that's not <laughs> why we want that is not my problem. <laughs> it's a great, um, it's a great prank, you know, to send a ghost to somebody. Uh, a lot of our fans like, um, like the reaction that it gets when the, when their friend who gets the ghost doesn't know who sent it and goes mad trying to figure out who, why, who sent me a ghost? Why would someone do this? Who sent it to me? And so some, a lot of people are like superstitious. Some people are, don't, think they're superstitious until they might have a ghost and then they start to worry all the time and then strange things happen around the house and they go it's that ghost you sent uh. me uh it, it's it's fun and it's uh it, it was a company that we started when the idea was originally like hey why don't we start a company while we send we send nothing to people <laughs> and i said well that's not you can't do that that's not gonna fly and, and then uh my partner jackie said why don't we send ghosts <laughs> a box with a ghost in it and uh so we put little haunted objects inside of a very cool box and uh we can ship that to anywhere you like i can uh i have one here hang on a second yeah i know this isn't good for podcast but uh <laughs> well, that's just, so we have a very cool box oh, that it comes cool. in it comes like in a, a black and blue box oh. right yeah yeah it's very nice huh. and uh oh, inside cool. of it you get uh we have this parchment that is, if you can, yeah, you can tell there, it's burned through. I can flip it around maybe. But oh, cool. uh, it has some various information on the ghost and when they died and what type of ghost and what they like and what they don't like and what kind of mood they're in. And it's all burned okay. in this parchment. And then we have like a haunted object. This one has a very old, a very old spooky key, <laughs> which the ghost is attached to. Okay. <laughs> and it's all in this box and you like you send it to someone you want to annoy <laughs> and it's been going crazy um we were in the local we were in the chicago oh. paper recently and orders are through the roof but uh that was just so actually it's good you brought that up because this this came from a project we were working on at our chicago 2600 meetup Oh, cool. If, yeah. So this actually does come back to hacking. So good question. <laughs> I just remembered this. Um, we had the idea at our 2600 meetups, which were often a very small group of people. And we, everyone would come and we were all kind of working on different things. And you, we would help each other say, hey, does anyone know Python? I am stuck on this. And, you know, it was a great, a great little first Friday meetup and we'd have a blast. But we, and we all got to be very good friends from just meeting up and having same interests, you know, and that's what 2600 meetings are good for is making new friends who have these weird interests that we have. And uh, one of us had the idea of, hey, how about every month we have a project? And uh, the project is we're going to think of a business idea and then we're going to mm -hmm. launch that business. We're going to hack this business together and we're going to figure out how to make it what we call turnkey, like automated. We don't have to do anything. We make computers do everything. And by the end of the meeting, we have to have the business functional. <laughs> and uh, oh. and the meetings, you know, the meetings would go through three, four, five hours sometimes. But <laughs> the Ghost Express was the first one that came from that. And we went from the idea of how do we send someone a ghost to sourcing this packaging and 
figuring out how to automate the laser engraving and automate the generation and the production of the notes that go inside of there and making it so all we have to do is take five minutes to assemble all this uh, and then we can have a hundred orders ready to go out and then they as soon as uh, somebody send you know orders a ghost it automatically generates their ghost and then engraves it on the paper and Oh, and cool. they get they get an email that has what their ghost info on it, and it's it's very cool. And yeah, it's been fun. That came from a twenty six hundred meeting where you know a bunch of hackers had an idea, and that's you know it's really cool because it shows like the definition of hacker and hacking is so wide. Like what we did here is we hacked we hacked a business together. <laughs> you know we we eschewed yeah. the norms of how to properly start and establish a business and said no, how do we what's the fast way? And it's been working great. <laughs> do you get a lot of like worried uh, customers calling that um, i just received the ghost like uh, who is stalking me we do get yes we on occasion will get people who say hey i would any chance you guys would be willing to tell me who sent me this ghost and if or uh, can i pay can i pay to know who sent me a ghost we also get uh can i pay to make sure no one can send me a ghost oh. <laughs> <laughs> proactive protection and these we don't protection. offer that this is things that seems like easy money like we would offer this service but no people come to us and say how much can i pay you to make sure no one sends me a ghost <laughs> it's uh, cool. it's a bit of very strange experience <laughs> and people are actually buying it and uh oh yeah we're shipping yeah cool yeah it's it's it, this is busy season because it's halloween here oh, i don't yeah. know if you have halloween there yeah we have the Okay, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea how that works outside of here. It seems like such an American thing. But of course, it came from Europe. Yeah, I'd have to imagine at the very least England. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. So, you gave in the not this hope, but the hope before you gave a talk <clears throat> about uh, hacking enterprises and hacking uh, big corporations. Uh, is there any like common pattern that you see of like? Uh, some low-hanging fruit that you see in the majority of the enterprise pentas that you do oh yeah <laughs> and that's you know that's one of the reasons i got so bored with it um there's certainly low-hanging fruit the, far and away the most common thing we see so if you even just look at breaches that happen in in, in reality the most common way that the breach occurred is somebody clicked on a phishing email and infected their machine mm -hmm. with some kind of malware. Often these days it's ransomware versus, you know, some kind of remote access device that allowed further penetration. Because again, like it's all about running an effective, efficient business. And these attackers go, okay, how, what's the quickest way to make money? You know, yes, mm -hmm. we can, we can get a foothold and we can examine their network and try to dig deeper and look for exploits and, try to transfer millions of dollars out of here and probably fail. Or we can just infect with some ransomware and then say, hey, send us a bunch of Bitcoins and then we don't have to, we don't have to have as many employees because these are, these are criminal organizations. These aren't you know, the 400 pound basement hacker that our president thinks it is. Like these are, these are intelligent professionals who are hired by criminal organizations to, to handle these things. And they have teams, they have bosses, you know? They <laughs> Uh, and so the quickest way was like, hey, if we just do ransomware, we don't have to employ so many people. We don't have to employ smart people. And these ransomware kits that come with tech support now, like the, the ransomware, de there's ransomware developers. If you go on the dark web and just like look to purchase, you know, ransomware kits, 
uh, it's like uh, free, free one year, a free lifetime technical support. And it's like telephone support. <laughs> you talk to a human okay. being about, hey, if for some reason, uh, it's not encrypting the target, the victim's drives properly, and they're still able to get their data. And you have some, some very nice lady on the other end who will walk you through what you may <laughs> maybe have messed up. And it's, you know, some nice lady in <laughs> Romania or the Ukraine. Uh, where the rule of law is a bit shaky. Um, and, and so anyway, the far and away, um, it's this issue of, A, yeah, it's people who click on things that they get emailed or through drive-by websites or something, things they're tricked into clicking on. But secondary to that is the fact that these people nearly always have a local ad admin account on their machine. Like they're uh, allowed to be local administrators on their Windows machines, meaning they're able to execute any kind of arbitrary code they want because they're the local administrator. And these are people who have no, absolutely no need for being local admins on these machines whatsoever. Uh, something like application whitelisting is so easy to do in many cases, even at a large enterprise, because as far as your day-to-day -day job goes, there's so few applications that you need to run uh, especially if you don't, you know, when you think of, you know, non-IT employees, you know, mm -hmm. every other department that's not IT, how many applications are they running? Three, four, you yeah, whitelist those. Exactly. And so then if anything tries to install and execute, it's just not going to happen. But uh, nobody does this. Um, everyone just like sets at the local admin and then doesn't do this whitelisting and anything can just run. And that's, that's how this happens all the time. Uh, so yeah, first and foremost, the low, lowest hanging fruit is the fact that everyone is local admins. So stop that. Stop it. <laughs> Don't do this. Um, secondly, uh, the, uh, the absolute lack of multi-factor authentication, um, both externally and internally. Um, so VPNs, uh, but as well as internal applications that often hide, the, you know, have data behind them that you wouldn't want getting out. Um, it's, I would say, especially internally, you almost never find multi-factor authentication on an internal application. And that's, so once you're in, now it's, everything's easy to get because you, there's no multi-factor. There might be multi-factor authentication on the VPN. And so you have to fish someone into getting a foothold into their internal computer. But then once you're in, all you have to do it's is just steal credentials access. and then go. Yeah. yeah. The, those are, that's, that's those two things. Oh, and then I can do this forever. Uh, <laughs> network segmentation. A complete lack of network segmentation is another big yeah, one. Uh, nobody does. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't mean network segmentation, like just firewalls even. Like not even like placing routers and network. doing ACLs. Yeah. Just control which machines can talk to which other machines. Those, you, if you cleaned up those three things in your environments, really in that order, if you go, if you get rid of everyone's local admin access and then add multi-factor authentication to anything that has sensitive data and that includes email and then, and then do some at least basic network segmentation between the places where the dangerous things are and the places where they're not. Um, devastating to a penetration tester, which means de devastating to an actual attacker. That's going to definitely cause so, so much pain for them to get anywhere that they're going to get up and they're going to go attack someone else. And those things are all relatively free. They cost more or less, depending on your environment, zero-ish dollars, you know, no, almost no money to implement these things. And nobody does it because it's hard and it takes time and it makes the users angry and nobody likes to make the users angry so they don't do it but yeah. even like multi-fact i i once talked to a cio who said mm -hmm. who, this is verbatim cio for a fortune 250 
global food distribution organization who said to okay. me in response to a penetration test report I had provided where I said, hey, you need to put, right? So I, the, in this report, I said the, the way we were able to get in is because you don't have multi-factor authentication on any of your external presences that allow network access. Number one recommendation, add that. If you had added this, we would have been stopped and absolutely nothing else we were able to do would ever have occurred. This is the number one thing you need to, to, to rectify. And his response to this was, that's going to irritate everyone because it's another step on the login. It's going to frustrate them. It's going to add more user friction to this access. I will not be the CIO who implements multi-factor authentication in this company. Like that's directly what he said. And I could not believe that I had heard that. Such, you know, talk, you know, I understand like, oh, we don't want to make the users angry, but it, we're talking how much, addition five seconds it adds to log in sometimes and it doesn't prompt you every time yeah. you know because you have your tokens and things are you kidding me and everyone is used to this now it's not like oh when i have to log into work it's so annoying because i have to do the the secret code no everywhere you log in now has this code <laughs> you know we're all used to this in our banking and in uh, our personal emails sometimes like we're this this multi-factor authentication is now a cultural norm. So to say that, oh, I'm not going to do that to my users because they're going to get angry. No, they're going to accept it as a cultural norm. This is fine. We all do this now. Why don't you do, why don't you protect yourself with this thing? And there's like, there's so many free or relatively free solutions to, to this that it boggles the mind that we still have organizations that are susceptible to such basic attacks. Yeah, totally. We did, uh, I worked as a like network engineer at a company and we were having this, this uh, phishing problem with the, the marketing people. They were always pressing on these stupid links and getting uh, ransomware and malware and shit like that. So yeah. we just uh, we just sec uh, we just created VLANs and we like throw all the marketing people into uh, their own separate network and then we created exactly. our own uh, network and then we just never told the marketing people that they're on another network. And because yeah, uh, they don't need to know. Every- no, we tell everyone. Just if if they ask, it's the office uh, downstairs, or it's yeah, the, it's a neighbor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. No one yeah. tell the marketing people this. Right. <laughs> oh, that's works. just f- floor two west. We just that's yeah. just how we set it up for no reason. <laughs> yeah. And how much did that cost you? I mean, of course, it costs you nothing. Oh yeah, time, some hours you know, to do it. It's yeah. a, a project, yeah. but it did. You didn't have to purchase anything. No, to, to impl- no, and it's devastating. Some firewall rules, and it's done. Yeah, right. Because then now, if somebody infects a, a marketing person's machine, all they're going to get is marketing information, which is all on your website anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like good. Here, yeah. you hacked into my company to get advertising. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Please forward it so we can get more customers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing now? Are you working for Casada now or have you started oh, something no. else? Or? I'm with, I, uh, so Casada uh, had to relocate their global or uh, their US headquarters to New York City and I elected to not make that move. Um, they didn't, okay. the company was, they had such a small number of employees in the US that they wanted to make sure that everyone was together in an office to build a team, to build camaraderie and it makes perfect, absolute sense. And I think it was the right thing for them to do. I didn't want to move to New York City. I wanted to stay in Chicago. And so I elected to not move along with them. Uh, I'm now at a company called Grimm, which um, mm-hmm. 
a lot of folks who are fans of uh, American conferences, at least, will recognize. Uh, Grim, we often run the ICS villages, or we will have ICS uh, CTFs where you're hacking into connected houses and, you know, hacking oh, cool. garage doors and and uh, things like that. that that's that's more our most public-facing thing where people might recognize us from. We oh, we do a lot of the automotive hacking stuff. We have a our, our cyber physical division is definitely our most popular. Uh, do you do like so SCADA we, systems? Like SCADA? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. We do lots of SCADA, lots of ICS for sure. Um, lots of automotive, like I said. And that's only one of our divisions though. We're we're a security engineering firm. Um, we do, so we, our big thing is we take on difficult problems. If somebody needs to engineer a solution to a security situation and they can't figure out how to do it. And also we are not exactly sure how we would do it. Those are the jobs we take. <laughs> if there's okay. anything where it's like, oh yeah, we know how to do that. We, we, that's easy. We could do that. We don't take those jobs. <laughs> we only take difficult work, um, which is, can be fun, but, oh, it's, it, it's, it makes you sweaty sometimes. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, you learn so much when you only have difficult work uh, and it's been very cool right now. What I'm working on at Grimm is uh, a CTF that we actually sell to companies to okay. run privately internally to oh, train. Cool. And it's, uh, it's, it's meant to be instructor-led. So you'll, you'll do a course, you'll do a class that's instructor-led, and then you will do uh, some, a, a level in the CTF that has several computers that are hackable based on the things you learned. And then you move on to the next course. Uh, and so it's oh, meant cool. to be for in internal training purposes. Uh, I was hired in at Grimm as a trainer uh, so I also deliver trainings, but the pandemic has made some of the trainings we do very difficult because they were meant to be done in person. Uh, and so in the meantime, I've been working uh, on developing this, uh, this private CTF uh, as well. And it is now the first versions of it are complete and we're shipping it and it's super cool. It's been great to work on something like that. I had never been a dev before. I had never been a development engineer. And so mm -hmm. it's cool to get, get that experience under my belt. And we're actually like writing code and, you know, it has to be stable and you have to do unit testing and things like, you know, <laughs> all of the boring dev work I'm learning. Yeah, the QA <laughs> and that's something and... exactly so much QA and QA of documentation. <laughs> it, it's, it's been so fun. Um, and this, a rule that I have for myself is whenever, whenever I change companies, I'm, I have to take on a role that I've never done before. I have to be doing something okay. I have never done in my life. And so with the idea being that once I've done that, now I can do one more thing. Now I understand yet another aspect of security and IT and how things work in the world uh, versus okay. doing the same thing over and over. And yeah, that means like I will never be a, a, a principal network architect or something. But um, it will mean that I will have way more of a well-rounded understanding of the entire world of IT and security versus most people. And that's my personal goal. I want to be the well-rounded versus the specialized. And, that's, and there's no right or wrong. You know, I'm not saying that that's what everyone should do. That's just what I want to do. If you want to be specialized and be one of the best of the world at a very specific thing, we absolutely need you for that. And you should if that's what you want. Uh, it's just not what I want. Yeah. That's cool. Is it based on anything or are you like redoing it from scratch, the CTF platform? Um, well, it, 
it's not no it's not based on anything in particular we are building all the machines from scratch and building the networks from scratch etc um it's being built to run inside of eventually we wanted to be able to run inside of any kind of emulation environment a virtualization mm -hmm. environment that you might have whether you know we want to be able to use vagrant if you want to run it in the cloud versus also you know if you want to run it on your vmware your internal vmware hosting we'll build the machines for that or and, and what we actually do is 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 uh we, we'll provide the code to build the machines for that so you can you know tweak it based on how you need the machines to be built or what have you uh so it's it's oh, a really cool. cool system where the yeah we don't we don't give you vms um we give you the scripts that build the vms and okay. so you can hit, you, you can run with it from there which makes it also very portable very easy to distribute it also means like so then you can spin those vms up as needed versus just having this huge you know terabytes of virtual machines sitting and collecting dust that you're never going to touch for a long time it's it, it's a very cool system and then we have you know we have a license a licensing system and to make sure that you're not using anything you haven't paid for and then uh, a ctfd just to track progress and scoring and such internally and these companies really love it we have we have very 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 large enterprises purchasing this which i think is is the target audience here because it, it's it's for companies where their internal teams are so large that sending everyone out for at least basic levels of training is expensive when it's something where they have the headcount internally to be able to provide education if they had the physical resources such as this to provide it with uh, and so that's who we're working oh, with cool. yeah and there's nothing like that really exists you know there's things like mm -hmm. you know oscp is a great lab network but um you can't purchase that lab network to run internally and ho have your own trainers teach OSCP. You have to pay. You have to pay, pay you know, uh, offensive security for access to all of that, and it's very much meant to be self-study. So we're trying to find the solution for the people who want to provide this training in-house, and we have found those people, and there are way more than we thought, and it's really cool. And so that's that's what I'm working on at Grim right now, as what I thought was just going to be a oh, trainer cool. where I just get. Yeah, I was like, oh, I just get you get the trainer guide and you talk to some people every week. And then, no, there aren't people to talk to anymore. So <laughs> they're like, all right, well, do you want to build some things? And I said, hell yeah. And it's been a blast. Cool. What, what are you, uh, do you get to choose what exploits or what vulnerabilities go in? Or uh, uh, I, you're taking absolutely. like OWASP um, 20 or? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's work? And it's not just... It's not just me, or I'd be so underwater that I'd want to kill oh, okay. myself. Uh, <laughs> we have we have many people working <laughs> on us. We, in fact, we're hiring like crazy right now. We're hiring a lead a lead developer for the project, um, like a CTF dev lead, uh, which I think is a dream job for most people I know who go to the conferences and like the CTFs. Like, would you like to get paid uh, to develop a CTF? That sounds cool, right? So at this at the time of this recording, we're still hiring for that position. If anyone's interested, uh, nearly all of our employees are full time remote from around the world. So, grim grim co dot com. <laughs> uh, it's grim co dot com <laughs> slash careers uh, or grim dot rip slash careers. Uh, both work. It's grim with two m's. So g r i m m dot rip slash careers and it's right there. And we also, we have a lot of positions open. Um, most of the ones we have open right now are not remote because they are, there are positions which require government clearance here in the US and have to be performed on site in those facilities. Uh, but there are several full-time remote positions open. We don't care where in the world you live generally, so long as the tax situation and the visa situation can, can get handled. And uh, we also, uh, one of my favorite things about 
the company is we have a general resume submission on that page where if you just want to work with us and you have a very particular set of skills, let us know. And we definitely consider hiring great people and finding work for them to do later because we know it's great to have great people. And so we're lucky enough to be able to have a company in, in, in the facilities awesome. for hiring people ahead of the curve. Yeah. That's super. That's nice to see that you're hiring throughout this uh, COVID uh, crisis. It's very nice. It's very nice to see that I didn't lose my job when training stopped. <laughs> um, and we've, we've had a number of our uh, competitors who we were still always very friendly with. We have a number of competitors who have gone out of business and we've let them know like, hey, if you uh, need to lay off your employees, please have them, please let us know who they are, put them in touch with us and we will give them first priority when we're doing interviewing to make sure that they can continue working. Um, it sucks that anybody has to go out on the street, uh, but you're our competitor, which means you do the work we do. So which means you have very experienced employees that we need. And so if, yeah. please have them call us and we're happy to give them priority because we know times are tough and we should all be working together. And so that's another thing we've been doing at Grimm is trying to make sure that our competitors having to close up is not uh, something we celebrate. It's something we help with in, in, in that undesirable situation. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, we worked with one of our, uh, one of our partners that was, uh, hosting one of our rack servers and uh, luckily we had backup of everything but in i think in january we got a we got a call from them okay okay we're doing very bad now we might go under and then two uh, and then nothing <laughs> happens for nothing happens for two months we emailed them a shitload of time try to call them and oh. then just one day <laughs> that entire uh, like uh, rack server just goes black oh <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> no yeah so that was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's why you haven't oh. been answering our calls. And then we called the hey. data center and we're like, yeah. what was going on? And they're like, oh, this guy just stopped paying the bills and just took off like a month ago. So, <laughs> so we unplugged it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, your server's there. It has no power. <laughs> Would you like to pay for it? <laughs> oh, That's terrible. <laughs> And, and yeah. yeah, and you know what? That's, that's a, a that's time. a good, this is a good time to remind everyone to test your backups, test restoring your backups because that almost sure. never works. Yeah. <laughs> everyone does backups, nobody tests them. Certainly, certainly. Another thing I wanted to touch upon was that you, you gave a cool, uh, cool talk recently about the payment app called Venmo, I think it was called. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool talk where they had the, uh, this public feed of uh, transactions. Was it? Yes, uh, that's. This is really cool that so many people who don't live here watch my talks, <laughs> and that's why I put them up on the internet, or the conferences put them up on the internet. We know it's it's difficult to travel to another country just to go for a conference for a weekend. Um, yeah, Venmo is a uh, an extremely popular. I don't know if you have the word cash app there but we call them cash apps here where you can send money between individuals through the use of an app and you know there's so many of these um you know china has wechat and you know uh, things like that um so yeah. a really popular one here is venmo it's us only 
which explains why some people may not have heard of it. But one of the things that Venmo had done to try to differentiate itself from this wide world of cash apps was they wanted to socialize the acts of sending money back and forth. They wanted Mm -hmm. it to be a social experience. Uh, And so like when you send money from your app to someone else, uh, one of the things it does is it forces you to make, to leave a comment. You have to say something. And they very much encourage you to use emoji instead of text. Like they want it to be fun and hey, pizza emoji, ice cream emoji. Thanks for the pizza and ice cream. And here's $12 or, you know, whatever. Uh, and then they um, made this. I, it, this is going to sound confusing and baffling to you because it's baffling to me. Um, when you open the app, what you see is this public, this social feed of people you mm-hmm. don't know who are sending money to people and companies who take Venmo that you don't know. And you're watching all of these people's lives go by in front of you and the things that they pay for. And you can, you can piece together habits from people when you say, all right, every day, this person goes to this coffee shop around three o'clock and buys a coffee. And so I know if I want to find out where that person is, I can probably go to this coffee shop around three o'clock every day and find them, you know, yeah, scary things like this, that stuff. right? Um, and, and you can see, I could figure out who lives with other people by saying who is paying their roommates for the electric bill, you know, say, oh, these people must live together. Okay. Let me look into this other person I wasn't looking into before and see where they frequent. And maybe I can triangulate where they live. You know, there's a lot of evil things you can do with this information that is all public by default. Um, Mm -hmm. you can just, you can disable the posting of your activity to this public feed but that is not the default. And it never prompts you to opt in or out. It's just there. You can dig into the settings and find it and turn it off and it's very easy, but the average person does not do this. The average person doesn't go into the settings of any application unless they're having a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so that, that it's public di- by default. And um, several of us had contacted Venmo on this. Uh, we, we had several journalists contact Venmo on this and say, hey, you know, what's, why don't you why don't you just set this to opt in? And Venmo's response was, um, we want this to be a very social application and, and we think people like being able to see this public feed and be a part of it. However, if our users um, dislike it so much, they're welcome to let us know and we can consider changing our minds on that matter. And so in, in the end, you know, the result was that because the users don't care uh, and I really, it's the, how the users still don't know that they should care and so Venmo uses that excuse of, look, they don't care, so it's fine. And it's like, no, the users aren't educated enough to know why they should care. You, you, you are. You know why they should care. You need to stop doing this. But um, after, uh, it was very interesting, after I gave a presentation at Hackfest Canada on this and provided actual actionable proof of concept code that everyone can use to scrape this public feed. Um, within a month of that, Venmo had ruined the ability to do that. Uh, and so the public feed is still there, but you can't get more than a couple pages worth of it. Okay. So they're limiting uh, yeah. it, right? They're extremely, well, it's not, it, they've, yeah, they've extremely limited it to the point where, uh, it's very, very annoying, uh, to be able to circumvent it, which is great 
like good i wish they would just stop having the public feed in general but you know it's okay something i thought was very strange is uh, you showed when you were doing like uh, a post request to get a user they were returning yeah. an api key yeah yeah so in the, in the sign the, up page that was right. so, so weird and that was something I had found. And if you remember from the talk, I thought I wasn't going to find anything and I was ready to give up. And uh, <laughs> um, they thought they were protected because they said, look, we do throttling. If you as a individual, if any individual user requests more than X number of pages of the public feed, we lock them out. And then so I said, OK, well, I'll just create more users. And uh, Venmo was doing the to create a Venmo account. You have to provide a valid US phone number. And then you get, you know, the code okay. texted to your phone and you provide the code and that validates your account. And then they say, cool, now you have an account. Feel free to do anything you want. Uh, I had discovered that Venmo was providing an API key as soon as you gave them an email address and phone number. So you provide any random email address and phone number and the application responds with an API token that you can use to then start scraping the heck out of the feed. You do not have to validate your, <laughs> your, your email or phone number. It's the instant response. You fill in the box, email address, phone number, hit submit. The, the HTTP response to that submit is here's an API token. And it's just you know in, in the background of the page. And so many application security issues are that. So many things I and we find in the application security realm are related to applications responding on the back end with way more information than they should be. But the companies think their application is secure because the front end does not present that information to the user. But all you got to do is hit, you know, uh, control option I in Chrome or Firefox or what have you, and just look at the data you get back. This is not, this is barely hacking. <laughs> this is something most users can do. And granted, you have to understand what the data you're receiving is and looks like. But yeah, of course. Uh, and this is we're talking about an access token that's a little more technical. But um, it, if uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with the the recent Grinder breach, I don't even know if you if Grinder is international. There's an application. It is international, a, but it's okay. Not so big in so, Sweden. Yeah. Okay, so there's a there's a, 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 a social a dating app called Grinder, and um, yeah. this app had a had an issue in it where um, the uh, if you would go into a user's account and hit password reset because you didn't have their password, so you know you see you provide an email address and you don't know the password and you say password reset. What normally happens is that email account you know an email is sent to that user's account with a reset token. And it says, click mm -hmm. this link in order to reset your password. We all know how that works. What someone had found is when they go to the Grinder app and hit password reset, um, the app responds in the back end with that password reset token. And and, and then you can what? just submit that token. Yeah. And so it gives you, it gives the person who hit that submit button, once again, just like Venmo, it gives you that password reset token. So you don't need access to hmm. the person's email inbox to reset their password, gain access to their account, which can be devastating when you're dealing with something like a dating app. And so that was a huge deal. But we see, oh, yeah. you know, that's still, we see much less technical things where the app responds with personal information and like, you know, uh, we were recently dealing dealing with um, well, I won't say what it was, but we were dealing with an application where you would uh, when you would just place an order, or uh, mm -hmm. go to when you were oh when you were even just scrolling through the inventory of things that you could buy, the app would regularly respond with, 
a flood of information about the user. And it was like home address, phone number, all of these things that could be intercepted and had no, they were never displayed on the page. They had no business. Mm -hmm. They had nothing to do with what was being on, going on. But like the app would send a request to the database that was way too big. And the database would respond with this massive amount of data that was requested. And because they weren't, you know, requesting just what they needed, they were just requesting everything. And like security aside, what a bandwidth hog. Like how much data are you throwing back and forth for no reason? Like that scales, that can get expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, yeah, there's, so yeah, backend, backend responses are the big problem right now. Uh, and it comes from uh, people trying to crank apps out and it's all, all mobile apps. So backend responses and mobile apps are like the, the hot button for 2020 uh, because devs are just trying to crank these apps out and make them work. And they say, all right, we need to display this in the page. What database is that in? It's here. All right, let, give me all this user's info. All right. And then uh, once I get it back, I will display these three keys on the page. In the meantime, though, your browser, whether it's your phone or whatever, gets all of that info. And that can get, you know, scraped and stolen, et cetera. Bad, bad things happen. So if you're developing apps, make sure you're not requesting anything more than you need to display. Uh, and make sure that you're not having anything more sent than should be. Certainly, certainly. Make your uh, application, yeah, access what what you need and not more. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's the print the principle. There's a uh, um, it's called the principle of it's a GD. It's part of GDPR principle of least information. I can't recall it now, but it's it's yeah, it's that. It's, you know, don't, don't ask for anything more than you need and don't provide anything more than, than was asked for. Certainly. Um, all right, let's jump into some quick questions to get to know sure. you better. What's your favorite drink? My favorite drink, my favorite liquid beverage to consume. <laughs> what a question. You can pick whatever you want. You should have sent me sent me these ahead of time. This is unprofessional. <laughs> oh, you wow. need to be able to act quickly, right? Yeah, be I, innovative. I love so. I'm a big water fan. I always have water with me. Always, I know that's the boring answer, but I always have <laughs> everywhere I go. I'm shaking in the mic. I always got my water bottle. I'm, I'm trying to stick to non-alcoholic because I figure the alcoholic answer is the most common and I'll give you one. Um, but uh, also I've been, I think most of us are big fans of caffeinated beverages. My favorites here have been um, something in the, in the realm of these, this one's I have right here is called rain, like R E I G N. Um, and so the, the brand like is monster so, energy, right? It's right. It's very much in, yeah, with the same shape of the logo for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just, and you're right. I didn't even realize that you pointed out because it's green as well, though. Like, oh, and it's supposed to be like a king with like face armor and the the crown, but that looks like an M. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. So anyway, what's been really cool is not so much the fact that these taste good, um, but there are these energy drinks coming out that are incorporating things besides caffeine and B vitamin complexes. They're inc incorporating um, blockchain amino acids. Uh, so BCAAs and um, uh, CO, C, uh, COQ10s um, and electrolytes. Yeah. And so these are other things that the body needs for focus and acuity and uh, repair and restoration. 
Uh, and mm -hmm. so it's cool to see them doing a more holistic energizing inside of a beverage um, versus just like, here's a crap ton of caffeine and you're going to crash later. Um, like the, the, the COQ10s and the BCAAs, those give you more, those give you more energy with no crash uh, and they help mm -hmm. repair your body. Um, and their fuel, the COQ10s are specifically one of the fuels your brain uses uh, to function. Uh, and so that's very cool. And then uh, I think I'll give you an alcoholic one as well. Uh, I'm currently very big into gin. I'm one of the few people who really, really, really loves gin and all kinds of gins. And so I used to have the bottle right here. I've been, I picked up a bottle called Opier. It's like O-P-I-H-R in London. Mm -hmm. And it's an, it's a gin infused with um, oriental spices. And it's like, you know, like Chinese five spice, but in a gin. And it's so good. It's so good that you can drink it very fast and it's dangerous. And so those are, there you go. Those are my three beverages of each type of plain caffeinated and alcoholic. Does that help? Is that a good answer? <laughs> That's a triple good answer. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Next question. When do you feel the most happy in your week? When do you feel that you're like peaking on happiness? your average week i think saturday <laughs> saturday because i have a, a lot of things that i like to do personally you know my personal life as as i hope many of us do and saturday is is that first day where it's like the world is your oyster like you have the entire day that all you have to do is for yourself and you can do everything for yourself and it's like well, what do i get to do today and i feel like I still feel like when I was a little kid, when, when you've Saturday, when you didn't have to go to school because it's Saturday and you get up Saturday morning and you're like, it's Saturday. We can, we can go outside and play. So like Saturday is definitely the peak. And then uh, Sunday is my uh, relaxed day uh, and get, you know, where you then prepare for the work week and think about, all right, what am I going to get done this week? And so Sunday is almost starting to roll back into work again. Um, but Saturday is like the exciting, like we can do anything because I don't have to work that day. And so whereas works dictates what you have to do and not that it's not fun. It's just what you have to do is dictated. Whereas Saturday yeah. is that's your day. Yeah. It's options everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And you could do um, nothing if you want, you can sit on the couch and you can watch television an entire day. And that was your choice and you got to do what you wanted. And that's important. <laughs> you acted. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite outside activity? Favorite outside activity. Oh, uh, I love a uh, motorcycling. That does that count? Riding the motorcycle is oh, that an outside uh, activity, yeah. or am I stretching oh. it? Okay, good. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that if if people who know, like if people had to list five things about me, cigars and motorcycles would absolutely come up in that list. Um, I have been an avid avid motorcyclists for since 2007 so 13 years um I'm, i've got around 25,000 miles under my belt um i don't know what that is in kilometers good luck everyone else <laughs> good luck everyone who uses real units of measurement um it's a lot i do them all on uh, sport bikes the real fast like 600 to 1000 cc racing bikes but i do very long trips on them which people are always amazed by because they have this reputation of being very uncomfortable. And uh, 
they're not if you do it right. And I love the performance. Uh, I love uh, the sport bikes because they're very much connected to your body and they just, you, you have to, all you have to do is think about doing something and they just do it. You don't have to push and lean and throw the bike around. You just think oh, it's cool. very Zen. It's very augmented reality. And so I love doing touring, like long tours on racing motorcycles. Uh, and so that's definitely my favorite outside hobby by far. And you can go very far from the city, go off into the wilderness. We have, we don't have real mountains nearby, but we have things people like to call mountains. <laughs> Um, but you can just okay. see nature. You can go down roads where nobody is forever and just see the beauty that is, you know, a, a world without buildings everywhere. And that's, I absolutely love it. Absolutely. Amazing. Nature. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's your favorite, uh, IDE or text editor? Oh, VS code, <laughs> uh, visual studio code. I, uh, and this is something I only discovered maybe two years ago, uh, for the longest time, okay. I, for the longest time I was using notepad plus plus slash sublime text on the Mac side, uh, forever, forever. Uh, I don't know how long I was using those. And, uh, uh, somebody at one point had been like, why don't, why aren't you using like a real IDE? And I was like, I don't know. I've always just done this and it works fine for me. And uh, I was working at a company where a lot of people used VS Code. And I was like, that looks really cool. I like what that does. I like how it does that. I like that there's, you know, open source plugins you can use for very specific scenarios. And I was like, this is, this is actually really cool and would help me a lot. And so I started using it and I was just an instant addict. And I love it now. I love that it's free. I love that it's cross-platform. Uh, it's very cool. It's very reminiscent of another tool called WebStorm that a lot of mm -hmm. JavaScript people use. So it's, um, that would be another one. So yeah, my, my favorite, my go-to right now is VS code. Uh, and then second was, you know, notepad plus plus or sublime text, which aren't, it's not really an answer because they're not really IDEs, but that's what uh, many of us use them for that. So. <laughs> yeah. How does your workflow look like when you're supposed to start your computer and do work stuff? What do you do? Oh, absolute chaos. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, it looks like chaos. It looks like I'm completely unhinged and it's all going to go off the rails at any point. But in all actuality, what I'm doing is I operate in a very, um, fluid, holistic manner where I do what I feel like doing at that point in time, which means I hop mm -hmm. around to different things, which means I hop around between, uh, work related tasks and personal tasks. Um, which has what some people may perceive as a negative effect of meaning that I will often find myself working at all hours of the day, but I'm not working 12 hours a day. I may work two hours in the morning, do some personal things, have lunch, go for a walk, work another three hours on some work things, have some dinner, do some more personal things, work on a build a project. And then maybe before bed, I'll put in an hour of something where I got an idea like, oh, I should try this really quick. And so I just, it, I feel like that helps my mood and my motivation a lot where I don't time box myself into saying, all right, it's work. And we're going to do six to eight hours of staring at this one thing. And no matter what, this is what I have to do. And even if I hate it too bad, you have to do that. I don't, I don't, I don't like hating what I'm doing. And so if I get stuck on something, I'll go work on, I'll go look at my personal emails and maybe I'll go shop for a new desk or something. You know, it's, it's, it's good to keep your mental health going. Uh, so, and, and, you know, working for a company like Grimm, 
And I think that most companies have this mentality now. As long as the work gets done, we don't care what time of day you did it. As long as you did it. That's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's nice. Yeah. It works for me. And it's not for everybody. Some It requires uh, you to be able to make sure that you are doing work. Because sometimes you just will not feel like doing work. And, but you have to do it. <laughs> so you at least have to have that that inside of you to make yourself do things when they need to get done. <laughs> certainly, certainly. What's your favorite like internet scanner or port scanner? Like and map favorite or of of, or... <laughs> of all time. Want to rule them all? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give you kind of a a bad answer. Um, there, my for the first like. So the first scanner I knew of was, was of course, Nmap. Um, but there was a scanner that had come out um, a long time ago called Sub-7, which you may be familiar okay. with. And I'm talking late 90s. And this thing was insanely fast because it, would, it could do um, uh, asynchronous scanning. So Ooh. all scanners at the time, they'd scan one they, you know, one port, wait yeah. for a response, one port, wait for a response. And they were slow, just insanely slow, especially when you're you know, talking about 90s, early 2000s infrastructure. Um, this Sub-7 was, so Sub-7 was a toolkit that included malware and rat access and things like that. And, but the scanner that it had was just the fastest thing on the planet. And I used to love pointing that thing at like residential IP ASNs, like all of Comcast or, you know, our, our residential ISP networks and finding open ports on people's computers because back then as well, um, f f firewalls, especially like individual, like residential people, they didn't know how firewalls worked. Your, yep. some home Soho routers didn't even have stateful firewalls and and a lot of people, when they were like, okay, I'm going to host, I'm going to be running my home security cameras here. So, oh, I, I got to be able to get, you know, back then security cameras didn't go out to the cloud, like the Google Nest or whatever, like your ring, like you wouldn't go to the cloud to view your stuff. You had to dial, dial in to your home internet. You had to be able to access. And so you had to open up your firewall. And most people, most, especially routers at the time, like, could allow you to open specific ports. Like the documentation was terrible the words, you know, were in a, the, it was all lost in translation. And now for the average person, this is an absolute mess. And all they could figure out how to do was just put everything in the DMZ and just mm. put it on the internet. So, so many people's computers, personal computers were just literally on the internet. So many people, in fact, only had one computer in their house at the time that they didn't have any kind of equipment in between themselves and the modem whatsoever. And they were just going modem right into the computer. <laughs> And they were done because they didn't, you're like, I don't need Wi-Fi and I don't need, you know, I only have one computer and it's just me. So like they had no firewall. And so I would run this sub seven scanner and I would look for the generally open ports that I knew were associated with security camera software uh, and remote access stuff and just go snooping. Like I was just a bad kid, like uh, effectively breaking and entering via the internet and see what, the, see what there is to see. Um, but to answer your question, it, that was my favorite scanner. <laughs> Not currently, because there's, you know, and I mean, right now, it's just Nmap is great. There, you know, and nothing, nothing beats Nmap. Everyone knows how to use it. It supports everything. It's still actively developed. It's um, one of the fastest things out there. Um, 
there are faster ones, but they're not as in depth. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned like um, mass scan. Yeah, mass scan. Um, I like mass scan a lot. It, it it's it has very a very specific context in which it works, and it doesn't work. It doesn't do UDP for one. You know, it's it's mm. it, it it's for very specific purposes, um, and it's fast and inaccurate. And so, if you need speed over accuracy, it's amazing. Whereas if you need accuracy over speed, and maps the way to go. Yeah. I mean, the Nmap scripts are, are, are really amazing. People are actually building like exploits in the scripts and testing out the yeah. exploits. Yeah, Nmap has an entire scripting like engine, that. NSE. That's, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and if you tune Nmap for what, you know, if you do some recon ahead of time and tune your Nmap scans for what you're trying to discover and what you're looking for, you can make it very fast. Just most people just go Nmap IP address and then wait. And it's like, well, that's the worst possible way you can use this, but I, it'll work. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's your favorite song or band? Oh, man. So I went to music school. And so that's a bad question because there's no, <laughs> I like so, I appreciate so much music. My favorite, I'd say right now, like, if I have to think of like favorite bands, so like what's a band where I would like drop everything if they were playing a show tonight, like where I would cancel like surgery. <laughs> um, there's probably two. One is a band many people know called, it's called Less Than Jake. Uh, they're from Florida mm -hmm. here. They're uh, uh, a long running ska punk band. I've seen them more times than I can count. Their shows are always the most fun thing on the planet. And I go see them every time they're here. And they're here like they used to be when we could do concerts. They were here two to three times a year. And so that I always go see less than Jake. And then on my other favorite, like drop everything is on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. It's this. So non-secular is the term I'm looking for. <laughs> it's a non-secular so quasi-religious groups and not necessarily Christian, oh. uh, but like a non-secular um, metalcore band called O Sleeper. And okay. um, the members of this band are so masterful in their instruments and even, even the vocalist and the writing, the, the lyrical acuity of this vocalist is so enthralling and interesting and you really dive into the stories that he's telling with the songs that he writes and um he likes to write uh, he'll they like to do albums where the the at least the 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 vocal content tells a story from beginning to end of the album and you learn oh, of characters cool. and interactions and it's so cool and then he'll he, they'll put out at two albums later you will have uh some a character return from two albums ago so it's almost like reading a book but it's a form of music and even if you don't follow any of this because also you have to read the lyrics because it's often difficult to understand what he's saying anyway because it's a metal band it's a very loud metal band that aside like it's still amazing to listen to and super fun um and they're called oh sleeper and i love to see them live they always put on a great great show there's so few people and they're so passionate they're so the passion that they have for what they're doing is so immediately obvious and infectious and it just gets into you and you can't help but also be as passionate as they are for what they're doing even if you don't even know what it is they're doing or aren't personally capable of doing it you are just like yes this needs to exist in the world so yeah oh, and cool. two completely different bands yeah wow. <laughs> good question i need to go yeah i need to go check them out now <laughs> 
Okay, next question. How do you do like package management? How do you make sure your system stays uh, happy and up to date? Oh, um, so I use, I, I predominantly use Macintosh. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I pride myself on using a Mac for ne pretty much everything, including streaming, all of that. I use Brew and um, I use Brew's uh, feature to keep itself automatically up to date, which a lot of people don't like because it might break your stuff and it does break my stuff on occasion. Um, but I try to install everything possible via Brew. I like the fact that I can export that config, config when I get a new Mac and just throw it right in there and go and populate it and get back to right where I was, right where I left off. So yeah, Brew is my package manager, hands down on the Mac. Or homebrew, it's called, but the command is just Brew. Yeah. Nice. What's your favorite uh, karaoke song? What's your favorite song to sing at the karaoke night? I was just thinking about this. Um, favorite? I don't know. So it's going to be silly because I'm a tenor. And um, a lot of the famous tenors are not necessarily like bands that I'm a fan of. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with Creed? The old like '90s or yeah. 2000s band Creed. So I can I can sing Creed songs very well. I was never much of a Creed fan, but I enjoy singing those songs because it's in my range and I can really put a lot of emphasis and myself and have fun with them because it's directly in the center of my singing range. Um, also, Johnny Cash. I can sing a lot of Johnny Cash with that low tenor. Uh, Johnny Cash is an incredible artist, but he's not someone that I put on on a daily basis to listen to. I got, you got to be in a certain mood to listen to Johnny Cash, but I can sing like Johnny Cash really well. And so I like doing those at karaoke. And it, and and you know, the, uh, one of the main purposes of karaoke is to have the the, the audience enjoy what's going on. Yeah. So it's not necessarily about you just doing something for you because you want to do it. It's about you performing. Like that's karaoke, we're performing. And so I can perform yeah. these songs very well. And so I like to sing things I can perform well that aren't necessarily songs that I might listen to at home. Yeah, totally. Um, last time you read the really good e-sign or a proof of concept uh, exploit that uh, you think, oh, this is a really smart way. Um, I, You know what? I, the ones I actually get excited about are the really simple ones. <laughs> uh, the, okay. like, when I see a really complex one, I go, you know, it's cool. And you go, wow, somebody really sat down and really hammered away at sorting this one out. But the ones I really like are actually like the, the, the grinder exploit I just mentioned, where it was just a matter of looking at the response. Those are the ones that I can't stop talking about because I get so shocked that it took this long for someone to discover such a basic flaw. Uh, and I love when something is easy to exploit because it also makes that make sure that that flaw is going to get fixed very quickly because they're often easy to fix too. Whereas like if somebody puts out an extremely complicated proof of concept, it's often unless you're talking about like remote code execution and arbitrary code execution, uh, at like system level or, you know, ring zero or one or something, it's yeah. often like, well, yeah, that's a big deal, but also it's almost impossible to pull off and it requires this perfect storm of context for it to be effective. So let's all calm down. Whereas the real easy ones um, are often the ones that have the biggest impact. And those are the ones I love seeing. Uh, and like I said, just the shock of how easy it is, is really 
just this enjoyment I get <laughs> and maybe I don't know what that's from, but I, I like, so just, I would, I, I clearly keep talking about that grinder one. And I think that was the most recent, like super simple one I heard of. So that's, that's, that's the last one that I liked to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, I think there was, uh, you remember there was like a couple of NSA exploits that got leaked, uh, two, three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, or something like Quite that. Quite a few. And then there was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there was one of those exploits that were like, uh, uh, it was like stupidly simple. I don't remember which one uh, it was. But it was like, yeah, very stupidly simple. And I remember me and a friend, we were just looking at this and like, is this what the NSA is like sitting on? Yeah. Like, yeah. really stupid and, mistake and... that developers make. <laughs> 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 right. And, it, and it's not that it doesn't have to be insanely complex to be like government grade exploit. It has to be yeah. insanely effective and, and, and complex doesn't necessarily mean effective. Um, it, all it requires is that it works. It works consistently. It's stable. Uh, and that the uh, vendor or, uh, or uh, target is not aware of it. And certain, you know, certainly there's exceptionally smart people that work for the NSA who develop exceptionally complex exploits. They just don't have to. They, they're as complex as is necessary. And sometimes it's just not that necessary. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that like, people will uh, have this giant code basis and then just someone makes a fuck up and then there is a remote code execution. And... <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> that become, and uh, it's, it's serious. It's that easy. And that's the, that's the, that's the, the problem is that the devs are always on the lose. The, the devs always have the hardest time because they have to think of every possible scenario, every possible vector, every possible attack yeah. surface. Whereas okay. the attackers only need one, <laughs> you know, it's it's tough and we and you know we as information and security professionals like we we don't give those developers enough credit we all we do is give them a lack of credit all we do is blame them for everything we don't really have an appreciation for how just insanely hard their job is to because you know they we have a phrase here it's because the perfect is the enemy of the good and they they're we expect them to be perfect and they can't ever be perfect they need things yeah. to be good because they need to get it out yeah. and anytime they're not perfect, they're made to feel like garbage because they weren't perfect. And that's ridiculous. Now, if it's something like basic that they should have known better, for sure, definitely they should be aware of that. But we need to stop shitting on people so, <laughs> so much for doing good jobs. Totally. All right. So one last thing I want to cover with you, since you've been working a lot with Casada, is mm -hmm. uh, do you have any good uh, tips on like bypassing web application firewalls? Like some stuff that the companies don't want us to know. Oh man, uh, it's the easiest. Kind of so if network? you go, uh, I gave a talk at a place called QCon last year, and you could watch it. It's on my, uh, it's on my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash Johnny Xmas. But in uh, my slide deck is on my GitHub, uh, which I can I can send you links to all of these. And the uh, the slide deck for it has tons of great bypasses in it, but. 
Um, the ones that work the most, unfortunately, are also the easiest. It's things like, you know, so they'll say like, hey, most people who are doing application firewalls, like they're doing IP-based stuff. It's unfortunate. I mean, that's why they're called firewalls because they're generally IP-based. Um, all you got to do is either A, um, rotate your IP and it, and that's really easy for like 15 bucks a month, you can subscribe to services that will provide you with thousands of IP addresses for you to rotate through via transparent proxies. And you can use a new IP address for every single Git request that you have or whatever. Um, and it, how do they get those IPs? Through various fun means um, that uh, th this will coincide with my next suggestion. And I'll answer that question more directly. Okay, um, the cool. next suggestion is just like, just use residential IPs, especially if you're attacking like e-commerce sites or sites that are generally being attacked by are generally being used by the average person from their home, like a, a company that would not ever want to block a residential IP, which is most companies, um, just use those. And you go, okay, well, how do you get thousands of residential IPs? How do you get any residential IPs? Like you, I know how to get one. And then if that one's blocked, what am I supposed to do? Because uh, that one is the one I have. Um, yeah. There's a, there's, yeah, perhaps your neighbor and then maybe the coffee shop across the street and then you're out. Um, that there are companies that use, uh, so there's, you know, all these free VPNs that are out there that everyone's using now, mm -hmm. Ola VPN. You can't watch YouTube without getting hit with six ads for a free VPN. Those VPNs are making money on the other side by selling access to your IP address when it's VPNed in. One of the biggest is called Luminati, uh, L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I. -I. Just go check them out. They sell residential IP packages. And they get them through way by way of their other company that's called Ola VPN, H O L A VPN, which oh. is a huge VPN. Like, so Ola VPN sells themselves to people who watch international television and want to be able to spoof the country they're in. Ola VPN is free, or there's a paid tier. The free tier sells it, turn, it basically it turns your computer into an exit node for botnets. It, it allows people oh, through the Illuminati service to use your IP address to. Um, scan, you know, scrape websites or do whatever it is that they're, that they're doing. So yeah, you're by using these free things, you're agreeing to host malware. Uh, and it's right in the terms of service. Go read the terms of service. The terms of service Crazy. are very small. They're, they're easy to read. They, a lot of these terms of service that nobody reads, they're like three paragraphs. No, still nobody reads them. And it's right there. Um, there's, a, there's a great mobile SDK called Monkey Socks that does something similar. Um, and all you do is you fold monkey socks into your application and monkey socks will pay you as the developer for every IP address that runs that SDK uh, because they then use that mobile phone for the same purpose. They use, so now you can get Whoa. cellular mobile IPs, which nobody's going to block. Who, who on earth that's is going cool. to block an entire mobile IP network? Nobody. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so that's, that's my big tip there is use residential and mobile IPs uh, and they're relatively inexpensive to do so. So, so there you go. That aside, um, if you're doing HTTP stuff specifically, just make sure you're including all the basic headers that get included. Your accept star slash star. You're providing a user agent that's real. That's I mean, those are the two big ones. You're responding with any cookies that are supposed to get responded with, and that's it. Like it's super basic. You can get way more complex with that. Um, if you want to go all out, learn Selenium. Um, Selenium is just a devastatingly great tool for web automation that's very difficult to detect if you change the default machine settings inside of it. 
So change the default resolution and how much RAM it has and all of that crap, because everyone looks for the default fingerprint of Selenium because nobody knows to change it. So if you use Selenium and you change the default to config to really anything else, um, you're going to get extremely far because Selenium does a great, great job of mimicking a legitimate user. And you can you can tie Selenium into Python, like you can you can get crazy with scripting with it. So those are that, those are all my basic tips for web application firewall bypassing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Is there anything we miss that you would like to cover? Oh man, I I actually do have to wrap. Uh, this we covered so much today, though. This was yeah. great. We, I, yeah. To answer your question directly, no, I can't imagine what else. You know, I'm sure we could talk for hours on anything, but we covered yeah. so much that this totally. was. <laughs> this was. This is going to be a long episode for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot a of. A uh, lot of nice stuff. So, how do yeah. people keep up to date of what you're doing? How can people stalk you on the internet? Uh, so I, I stream uh, one to three times a week, which means I average two uh, on Twitch. I'm twitch.com slash Johnny Xmas. Again, that's with a zero and a four, the same as my Twitter handle. Um, you can catch me on Twitter. I'm usually yelling on there a lot. I try to mostly stick to being funny on there. Um, and that's uh, the Twi Twitch has been the big way this year. 2020, we're all stuck mm -hmm. inside. Twitch has been huge. So I do a lot of stuff on Twitch. I do. I try to do drone streams on Sundays. Cool. I do wreck, I wreck it Wednesdays where I just take something apart all the way down uh, and then uh, fix it Fridays where I put things together. <laughs> nice. All right. Super. All right, Johnny. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today in this episode. It was a pleasure having you on. And I yeah, learned thank some you. stuff, but I'm sure our listeners learned a lot as well. Yeah, this was good. This was a great, this, this really picked my day up. I, I appreciate you asking me to do this. I'm glad I got to. This was fun. Yeah, totally. We got to have you on another time as well. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Totally. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, man. All right. You too. It's good talking with you.